1: Welcome to the Be Here Now Network guest podcast. This series features talks from a myriad of modern spiritual teachers expanding on how we can all live a life in balance. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash guest. It has been said that there are 84,000 Dharma doors, Meaning doors that you could walk through to become free, and the idea that there's so many—I think eighty-four thousand—means you know almost uncountable numbers. Is that there are different doors for different people, and uh, so um, what I'm going to talk about tonight is the door of dependent origination, which is uh, sometimes considered to be one of the profound. Doors, profound teachings of Buddhism. The um, and maybe it'll be a door for some of you, and maybe for others of you it won't be a door. If it is not a door, uh, don't worry. <laughs> There's more doors. <laughs> my mother, when I was growing up, my mother said, <clears throat> "Well, I don't know if I should say this." <laughs> Well, I'll modify it," she said. <clears throat> um, something like, uh, "Don't run after the bus; there's always another one coming." So, um, there's more doors coming. So, dependent origination, the um, has a very. I think uh, Guy pointed out, is a very close connection between dependent origination and emptiness and even more so in Mahayana, because of the teachings of Mahayana Buddhism, uh, puts uh, almost almost primary emphasis to explain emptiness from the point of view of the, what's called dependent origination, conditioned arising, dependent co-arising. And um, so much so that uh, there's... Uh, one of the quotes here is, um, <clears throat> whoever... Um, Uh, What is dependently arisen, that is what we understand by emptiness. The famous Mahayana philosopher Nagarjuna. So equating the two together. So uh, emptiness uh, as being dependently, pointing to what's dependently arisen. So one one of the implications of this idea is that in this in this kind of teaching of dependent origination, emptiness and dependent origination are not distinct. Or and, all, and and or say it differently, that emptiness is a characteristic of the things of some things. So the characteristic of water is that it's wet, and you kind of don't separate water and wetness; they kind of come together. Uh, a uh, cloud. Is impermanent. Just or a river is impermanent, just flowing, and you don't separate out the impermanence. You know, you can't take it out. The permanence from the river. It's just a characteristic of a river. It's constantly uh, changing and flowing, and so emptiness in this teaching of dependent origination is a characteristic or a quality or an aspect of some things. So it's not negating that things exist. It's just explaining how they exist, the way that they exist. And they say, they say that they exist in an, empty, in an empty way. And so that's what the topic for today is. What so does this mean, that they're empty? So it's not negating that things exist. It's negating, some, negating something about some quality of them, some characteristic of them. So, for example, I can ring the bell. can hear the sound and that sound is empty of material substance that sound i mean the sound sound is empty material substance. the 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 sound i don't think has a weight this it's just uh, it's empty of weight it's empty of substance so it's a it's a characteristic of the sound to have that kind of emptiness and there's many things in our life which we appreciate when they're empty and uh so, uh, uh, water, which is empty of impurities, is clean. Someone, uh, uh, someone whose conscience is empty, uh, would be someone who is not troubled by anything, I think. Uh, the air, when it's clean, empty of smog and dust, it's kind of feels good to look, look out across the terrain and see the clear, clear skies, clear, clear air. Um, an empty hand is sometimes very meaningful sometimes it's very painful to end it up you ended up empty handed but to come with an empty hand to be or op's kind of say or say it differently to be open handed when's a hand open and when's a hand empty It's kind of like you have to be empty to be open handed and have a hand that's useful there's a beautiful quote from a a Christian theologian named um Henry Nouwen. That touches on the value of emptiness, being empty. Um, and uh, it's a, it's the quote starts with this beautiful, I think, whole phrase We are all healers. Isn't that nice? We're all healers. And he's writing this kind of for chaplains or people who offer spiritual care. We are all healers who can reach out to offer help. And we are all patients in constant need of help. He says a variety of things, but the quote I wanted to read, he says, Therefore, healing means, first of all, the creation of an empty but friendly space where those who suffer can tell their story to someone who can listen with real attention. So to create an empty space, not be so full of yourself when you go talk to someone who's helping, you're, you're going to help, but to be empty enough to listen and hear them and hear them out uh, and have that ability to empty yourself. And I think many of you probably value uh, coming on retreat for the way in which it empties out a lot of the momentum and concerns and preoccupations of your heart and mind, a lot of the kind of... Um, uh, residue that's left from our way we live our life has a chance to settle out in a certain kind of emptiness and that emptiness emptying sometimes is almost synonymous with the word free the water which is empty of impurities is free of impurities a window which i guess it wouldn't work for window but um you know the air which is empty of smog is free of smog uh, a heart which is uh, f- uh, free of suffering is empty of suffering. A heart which is a mind which is free of anxiety is empty of anxiety. So there's, there's a way of understanding it's empty. What's empty is being very meaningful. And one of the things about being empty is that it allows for new possibilities. Um, and so how do we get empty? To make space for something to happen. What's the value of being empty? And what are the problems of not being empty? Uh you know, what what's what's why why did the Buddhist tradition put such strong emphasis on things, um, you know, to be seen as being empty as opposed to being some other way? So the teachings on dependent origination point to this, and the ancient tradition uh explains as a story. <clears throat> that the Buddha's foremost disciple Sariputta was a spiritual seeker in his time, hadn't met the Buddha, and but he met one of the Buddha's monks, and the Buddha's monk, and he asked this this monk, you know, what does your teacher teach? And the monk said, you know, I, I'm not really qualified. And so he asked, you know, please let me know. I, I'll let me be the one to decide. You know, if you, you know, if it's if it's meaningful, I'll get it. And so this monk then gave this very short teaching, which is a teaching on dependent origination. So, of those things which arise from a cause, that the Tathagata has taught that cause, and also their cessation. Such is the teaching of the great teacher. With that little statement, Sariputra understood something so profound that his life was never the same again. And he then went and found the Buddha and was ordained and became a Buddhist monk and continued his practice until he became fully enlightened. There's something about this little saying which can seem so ridiculous to say that he kind of got it. Of those things which arise from a cause, the tathagata has taught the cause and also their cessation. And that's, again, the topic of the dependent origination that today is going to kind of focus on Why is this statement so profound that Sariputta kind of, in a certain kind of way, woke up, changed his life? So, um, so how do things exist is also part of what dependent origination tries to explain. What's, do, do we understand how they exist? So if I give an example of making a fist. Now a fist is useful for some things. And um, if I get angry with you, it might be useful to scare you away. It might be useful for having a temper tantrum. It might be useful for, I don't know what, but I'm sure it has other uses as well, to have a fist. But it's pretty limited what this hand can do if it stays in a fist. Now, this fist, what's the nature of its existence? How does it exist? Does it exist in some absolute eternal way? Is it a really existing thing? If you say it is, then I open my hand. What happened to the fist? The eternal existing solid thing. Can you find the fist now? It's gone. So if you say that it it really exists, I go like that. It disappears. It doesn't really exist. If you say it uh, doesn't exist, and if I was, you know, a Zen master, I'd probably (laughs) (laughs) tap you gently to make a point. It does have a certain kind of existence. And it has a certain kind of non-existence. Existence and non-existence doesn't really really accurately speak or say what this nature of the fist is, the existence of this fist. The fist doesn't really exist exactly. It exists temporarily because certain things are happening. Certain things have come together. I've tightened up the muscles in my hands and my forearm to pull those fingers in. And I've wanted to, I want to do it. So there has to be a thought in my mind that says, tighten up the muscles oblige. And if I am making a really hard fist, I have to continue to remind myself, keep it tight, keep it tight. Cause it natural tendency is that they kind of want to, that activity is to stop the activity to relax and open up so the existence of this fist exists in part on my on these conditions it's that i want to tighten up and make a fist and my muscles tighten up if i stop wanting to have a tight fist stop stop sending those signals into my hand and stop tightening up my muscles then the fist opens up. I like this analogy of a fist because I can, you can explain some other things as well. And that is, once the hand is open, the open hand is useful for a lot more things. An open, empty hand uh, can be used for picking up a tool, for shaking a hand, for giving caressing a child. It can be used for... A, uh, you know the hand, the inner hand is quite sensitive compared to the outer part of the hand. So this heightened sensitive part of, our, of who we are is available to the world and to sense. We can do a lot of things. We can help people with their, with an their open hand. It's uh, for as many people. It's the first contact they have when they get born. Besides the contact with their mother, is someone's hands receiving them and taking them, kind of touching. You know the contact we have with hands, what we can do. I think that if that if the midwife you know was going to rest- only had a fist, <laughs> we'd come into a different world, so to be able to release the fist. so the same thing is true for our hearts and our minds, that if we keep ourselves knotted up, caught up. If we keep ourselves attached to things, it might have some use. And maybe once upon a time it was useful. And I would, I would venture to say that we don't try to get attached and hold on unless we think it's useful. Something thinks it's useful. To protect ourselves, to get what we want, to do something. Maybe once upon a time it was. But to go around chronically, knotted up, fisted up in the mind or the heart limits us dramatically from what, you know, all the other things we can do with an open heart, an open mind. And, um, and the most sensitive parts of who we are are found in that openness, not in the cl- clutching in the, that goes on. So then the question is, like the fist, are there conditions that are behind the clutching of the heart and the mind? Are there things that it arises in dependence on? And so, you know, so it could be that I'm all closed down because I'm afraid. So independence, dependent on my fear, I close my heart. So then the, the idea would go that if you realize that fear is what keeps the heart closed, then perhaps it's useful to deal with the fear and the heart can open. It's probably not so useful to bypass that. So, if, uh, you know, if, I don't know if this is a good example, but, uh, you know, sometimes it's definitely useful to get a massage and relax nicely. But doing that relaxes from the outside in. When you sit in meditation and sit and feel your tension, then there's a chance sometimes of doing that relaxa- relaxation from the inside out. So if you're tense because you're afraid, the massage might give you relief, but it might not address your fear. But if you sit quietly and feel and enter into the inside and really feel what's going on deeply inside, you might become aware of the fear and maybe address it and resolve it. If you do it from the outside in, you might get relief, but the underlying condition tension has not been addressed and so then you know the massage wears off and you know you can be, be you know tighten up again but if you go from the inside out and address the underlying condition then uh, maybe you have a chance of not uh, repeating the same patterns of fear and tension closing down that might happen so the teachings of dependent origination are the teachings that are are suffering the ways that we suffer is not an eternally existing thing. It's not a fixed thing, and it isn't that it. And it, we don't want to say that suffering exists absolutely, but we don't want to say that it doesn't exist either. Anybody who hurts knows that. that she, I've had I've had people people into them kind of certain kind of kind of over-the-top idealistic emptiness philosophy will look at me and say, you know, your suffering is empty. You know, like just, you know, there's no suffering, basically. Ouch. (laughs) Now I hurt more. Yes, it's empty, but, (laughs) you know, it hurts. (laughs) So, you know, does it exist? Does it not exist? Does my suffering really exist? Does my suffering not exist? that's not the question that is interesting. What's interesting from the Buddha's point of view is what's the condition that out of which originates the suffering. So if it's tension or closed heart because you're afraid, then the fear would be that condition. If it's um, tremendous disappointment in something, and the condition for that was um, greed, then rather than dealing with disappointment, maybe it's more, more significant to deal with the greed underlying it. So there's a whole, every, every, all suffering, according to the Buddhist teachings, has a condition for its arising. We don't, we don't get born with suffering exactly. It's something that we, you know, there's a doing, there's an activity that we're involved in. So suffering is part of a chain of activity, it's a process, it's not fixed. And this is supposed to be the good news in Buddhism. And so this is what Sariputta understood, that for those things which arise because of a cause, the Buddha teaches the cause, and he teaches their cessation, the cessation. So of the suffering that arises because of fear, the Buddha teaches you about the fear, and the ending of that fear. Of the suffering that rises because of greed, the Buddha talks about greed, the cause in greed, and the and the cessation, the ending of that. So the task is to, and what is to really see this clearly for ourselves. So Sariputta was. When he, when he saw that possibility, it kind of woke him up. And I'm not saying it's the same thing, but I want to share with you a little moment of kind of waking up that I had on a retreat in, in Burma that uh, showed me the power of both the practice of, the, of Buddhism and specifically a practice of mindfulness. So I was uh, contentedly doing walking meditation, been, been in, a ret- in a retreat for a while. It was the longest retreat, and I was doing walking meditation. And something inside of me had me appreciate that in the moment of being mindful, there was a kind of freedom in that moment. In the, in, when mindfulness was strong, and I could just be really present, and know this is what's happening, be present, and have the knowing of it, there was a way in which I wasn't caught, wasn't entangled. There was a kind of freedom in it, and also a kind of joy. So that, that kind of was there, kind that of, kind of that reflection, that understanding arose. And the next thing that arose for me was the understanding or the idea that I can, in theory, be mindful of every experience I have. And so, in theory, it's possible to be free. In every experience that I have, and then I got really happy it wasn 't like I could do it just like that easily, just because I saw it, but wow, I, now I knew something, I knew a possibility of freedom, I knew a path, I knew a way oh it 's possible, and I, you know, and so that I just was you know, and then I kind of wasn 't so mindful anymore because I was so happy. <laughs> The um, So the dependent origination is uh, usually talked about in two different ways. One way is as a, as a principle, and then some people associate with what um, Sally is going to talk about in a few talks from now, which is the chain of dependent origination. It's a 12-fold chain. And the 12-fold chain is the application of the principle. So the principle is that, say it maybe in, you know, kind of unspiritual terms. Um, um, there is X. X originates from Y. With the seizing of Y, X ceases as well. If something. If there is something, and its it's existence is depending on something else, if that something else ends, the first thing ends. So I don't don't push the analogy too much, but um, the rain is dependent on the clouds. The clouds go away, and there's no more rain. So that's the principle of dependent origination. And uh, in, in, the, in the passage 29, there's one of these versions of this principle. When this is, that is. From the arising of this comes the arising of that. When this isn't, that isn't. From the stopping of this comes the stopping of that. So this is this is the principles of dependent arising. Dependent means that it arises in dependence on something, and arising <clears throat> the word is actually uh, samupada, which means <clears throat> the sum means with, so co-arising. Things uh, because some things arise together, <clears throat> some things clearly follow kind of a chain, one follows the other. So the um the famous teachings in Buddhism of the Four Noble Truths are an application of this teaching of dependent origination. So the Four Noble Truths is there is suffering and there is a cause or, an, or, or, or or something that arises dependent on. And if that cause or that condition goes away, then that suffering goes away. So if we kind of restate it here, um, <clears throat> when craving is, suffering is. With the arising of craving comes the arising of suffering. When craving isn't, suffering isn't. From the stopping of craving comes the stopping of suffering. Or to say it in a way that I kind of like, I think it's just for me, it's kind of has more of an impact or a punch. If you cling, <clears throat> you will suffer. If you let go of that clinging, the suffering stops. And I like saying it this way. I like saying it this way that the, this principle here is because if you start the way the Four Noble Truths is usually stated, suffering the origination of it, the origins of it, the cessation of it. Then people say, wait a minute. All suffering comes from craving? I'm sure there's suffering which doesn't come from craving. I think people protest too much. Some people really want their suffering. But if you say it the other way, if you cling, you will suffer it's hard to argue with that maybe there's suffering that, other kinds of suffering that doesn't come from clinging but if you cling you will suffer so watch out so so this is supposed to be the good news in buddhism and it's supposed to be the alternative towards fixating on things existing in some solid way or fixating on things things don't exist at all but rather, the focus is on not on whether things exist or doesn't exist. The focus is on understanding how they come to be. And they come to be dependent on conditions. And that gives you a wedge, gives you a, a uh, an approach to change the stream of suffering that you have. Part of this theory, I think, goes along with it. It's not stated in the text, and that is that um, the cause, or the, or the say, the cause, the condition for suffering, is something that's being recreated moment by moment. So it's a little bit different than how it's conventionally understood, where you know, the, something happened to me yesterday or ten years ago. Someone, someone cheated me, cheated me out of my bank account, and I've been, you know, struggling ever since, and I suffer because of all kinds of reasons because of that. So the condition for my poverty is this guy who took my bank account. That's not going to change. But the, but it isn't. That's that's considered a supporting condition the immediate condition that we can have something to do with is how we, how, how I relate to that situation and how I, my attitude towards it, my reaction to it, my judgments about it, my feelings about it. And those are getting recreated moment by moment. And that's good news as well because I might not be able to do anything about the lost money 10 years ago. I might not have much to do about my poverty, perhaps but I can have a lot to do with how I hold that, how I relate to that. And do I hold it with fear? Do I hold it with greed? Do I hold hostility and anger? And that whatever the hostility, the anger, the fear, the greed that still might be operating, the clinging that's there, that's being recreated all the time. And so that's why this thing is good news, because the primary condition for our suffering that we can make a difference with is something that uh, an activity a process inside of ourselves that's ongoing it doesn't justify what happened 10 years ago it doesn't mean we have to ignore it or you know do whatever we need to do <clears throat> but it's the good news about can we stop get quiet enough or settled enough focused enough to begin taking greater responsibility and care for this inner life for the quality of the inner life can we begin seeing where the conditions are, what we're doing, what our contribution to it is? What is our contribution to our suffering? And my, my idea is that if you want to find the Buddhist path of practice, the quickest way to find it is by noticing your contribution to your suffering. Other people might have contributed to it. This is not to deny the fact that you got to take care of other people's, what they're doing to you. But you don't find the Buddhist path there, path of liberation there. You find a mature, maybe you find human maturity in taking care of the things in the world. But if you want to find the path of liberation, the primary place to find it is by looking at, at your own contribution to your suffering. So, someone once said, "Once you've taken refuge in Buddhism, and the Buddha Dharma Sangha, you have no reason anymore to complain." What do you think of that? <laughs> <laughs> you can you can, comp- you can complain about it later if you want. So, um, and I think the reason for this idea is that because once you really understand this this principle, of dependent origination, and where this And how it applies to suffering and how we're supposed to then begin taking responsibility and uh, take and look at our contribution. That becomes the primary kind of, you know, place we find our freedom. So, um, so one of the ways that people cling, one of the things people cling to is what uh, Guy talked about this morning, the, the clinging to self. And it's a very tenacious kind of clinging because sometimes it's very obvious that holding on tight. But sometimes um, it's very subtle. So subtle that are some Buddhist teachers who say even the very notion, the feeling, the sense of I am involves a very subtle kind of clinging, holding, fixing, fix, fixing on something. And so even the sense of I am is a fixation. Let alone all the kind of grosser kind of ways we can get attached to self-identity things. And as Guy said so beautifully, uh, you talked about ahamkara and my, my what is it ahamkara my, you know, selfing, I uh, making and mind making. These are making. These are activities of the mind. If you're involved in an activity of the mind that clings to self, to me, myself, and mine you will suffer if you can have a self identity without acting on it and living in it and process, you know and holding on to it you probably won't suffer so it's re- rel- relatively reasonable for you to, for me to say that I'm a man and i don't usually kind of care so much as far as i can tell and um so the uh, you know I don't, I don't go around clinging to this guy you're a man as far as like you know maybe i do but you know but I, you know i don't think about it too much so I, but it's an identity i have sometimes i have to take it into account like if i want to go to the bathroom here at spirit rock i think many of you would, you know, would want me to be clearly aware that i have this identity thank you it's uh, it's all empty right so I can go empty myself anywhere. (laughs) But it's also possible for me to be completely caught up in being a man and macho and tough, and, you know, and I can really hold on to this, or I can be really attached to being the the vulnerable and kind guy. You know, there's all kinds of ways, right, of being attached to self and, you know, this stuff. That all that is an activity of the mind. You have to do it. Those are things you're doing. And when you you start doing, it's good news that you're doing because you can stop doing. And you can stop doing without needing to debate is there or is there not a self? Is there or is there not a self is the same as is there a fist or is there not a fist? Sometimes there is, sometimes there isn't. It depends how you look at it. But the, the general way in which we see and understand ourselves as a self is an activity. And all activities of the mind can be calmed down. And that's another piece of the good news. You don't have, you don't have to always be so busy. Nibbana, nirvana, is basically a really good vacation. It's a way of really putting to rest and stopping all that incessant activity. And one of the reasons why Buddhists are so hung up around this thing about self and not self, and really make such an important teaching of it, is because it's one of the primary places where we cling and hold on. And if you get involved in philosophically justifying there is a self, or there isn't a self. You're missing the boat. You're missing to look to look at what's really useful. What's useful to do in terms of liberation is to find a path in yourself to understand the activities that you do, that are the origination, the conditions for the arising of suffering. And if you're clinging to self, you will suffer. If you're clinging to needing to have a belief in a self, you'll suffer. The activity of believing in a self is not needed to become free. The activity of believing that there is no self is not needed to be free. So that's why the Buddha, I believe, said put aside all the thoughts all the approaches to understand your life from the point of view of was I, was I not, will I be, who am I, am I, am I not, that I read the other day. And he said, rather, understand it from the point of view of dependent origination. Because then if you start looking at the actual process that you're involved in, then you have a chance of getting in there and doing something about it, changing it, shifting it, freeing it. And the, what I read a few days ago was, was, instead of all that self kind of analysis, look at suffering, its origination, its cessation, and the way to its cessation. <clears throat> and this is another way of saying dependent origination. Things arise because of conditions. When those conditions are put to rest, then um, uh, the original thing, ghost is put to rest as well. As I look at uh, the teachings of uh, the Buddha in the early texts, he's really concerned, for the most part, with suffering and the end of suffering. And you might think that that's a pretty limited approach to religious life it encompasses a lot more but that's kind of the the gist of what it's about because it's so meaningful to help our, ourselves and other people not to hurt so much we have a world of people hurt in deep and profound ways and what is it how can we really address the deep hurt the deep suffering people have that really gets to the root And, and so the Buddha, that's what the Buddha was concerned with. How do we get to the root? How do we get to the root? Not to put a bandage over it and not to give relief to people, but to help people get released from their suffering. So dependent origination is is this good news that the Buddha had offered for this purpose. It means you're suffering, you're not stuck in suffering. you can there's a practice to be done. It helps you get underneath the suffering to the conditions out of which it arises and change those conditions. So I said this with emphasis of suffering because sometimes people will take the teachings of dependent origination and want it to apply it to everything, kind of like a, a Buddhist physics that everything is dependently origin. And I think that's p- pretty much the case. It's it's a fine belief to have. But I think we get, maybe we get sidetracked a little bit too much into philosophy. The, uh, as I understand it, the point of these teachings is to help be a mirror so that we're willing to do the deeper work of looking again, looking more carefully, getting quiet enough, still enough, concentrated enough so that we can see our contribution. What are we doing that's a condition for why? We suffer while we... St- and so the teachings on emptiness, emptiness and dependent origination, being closely connected, is, is also means that the, nothing, nothing in the world of our suffering is fixed and solid. It's all changing. And it's all changeable, depending on the conditions that are in place. All the things that we see in the world around us are impermanent and are constantly changing. And they, in their own way, are empty of lasting existence. And therefore, they don't qualify as something that's useful to cling to because it's like clinging to water. The water just runs out through your hands as you form a fist. So... So perhaps this dharma door is meaningful for some of you. um, And perhaps like Sariputta, who heard it and kind of was pretty impressed by it. Maybe if you really think about it and take it in and consider it, maybe you'll be impressed. Maybe it's meaningful for you. And one way to consider it that maybe can help you understand the impact of it is to not go into abstraction, not go into thinking a lot about it, but appreciate what happens in the immediacy of the present moment. And that there's some way of seeing in the immediacy of the present moment what's happening, and your relationship to what's happening. And that in your relationship to what's happening, you can find this whole dependent origination. Whether dependent origination is something that's ultimately, philosophically you know, valid in all possible directions, isn't as interesting as in the immediacy of your life. There's what's happening, and there's a relationship to what's happening. That relationship is a condition for something else, and that relationship arises out of other conditions. And if you appreciate the conditioned nature of that, how things arise because of conditions, and that the conditions are not fixed, that then there's a possibility of being free in any situation you find yourself in, any moment, any time that's here and now. But if you don't get close to the present, and stay in abstractions about it all, I don't think dependent origination is going to have much meaning, unless it's just a nice philosophical idea. So if you take it in and consider this teaching, you might try to consider it from that perspective of the immediacy of now. What's happening now? What's happening and what's your relationship to it? So, there are more readings in the study guide on this section. I'll leave that to you to read if you'd like. I think hopefully the talk kind of sets up the readings so they make a little more sense than they would otherwise. So, let's take a, a few minutes to sit and recollect. So the Buddha was supposed to have said, one who sees dependent arising sees the Dhamma. One who sees the Dhamma sees dependent origination.